Hello and welcome to Seeing Red. I'm Mark. Welcome back. We're here for another episode. And we're actually heading back to America this week as we take a deep dive into the unsolved murders of renowned rappers and infamous rivals Tupac Shakur and the notorious B.I.G. Biggie Smalls. This is a complex tale which takes us into the very heart of the East Coast-West Coast rivalry that dominated rap culture in 1990s America. Set against a backdrop of gang warfare where violence and power were the only currencies worth having, this case sees us attempt to answer a question that has plagued the true crime community for a quarter of a century. Just who was responsible for the brutal murders of Tupac and Biggie? Now, before we go there, let's take a moment to name-check our latest Patreon supporters. Huge thanks go to Chris Warburton and Emily, who have signed up in the last week. If you would like to join them in supporting the show, ensuring we're around for a long time, not just a good time, then head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. And I would also like to give a huge shout-out to Mark Herkett, who is 50 on the 28th of June. So happy birthday, Mark, for the 28th. Your wife, Holly, got in touch and asked for a shout out, which we're very glad to be able to do. So have a fantastic day. The early 90s bore witness to Tupac's stratospheric rise to global superstardom. His debut album, Tupacalypse Now, was released to critical acclaim in 1991 and would go on to be cited as an inspiration to Tupac's successors, including Eminem, Nas and Game, whoever the hell they are. Am I too old to be doing an episode on rappers? I don't know, possibly. Tupac's socially conscious rap struck a chord with underprivileged and underrepresented black communities across the whole world, and he was able to poetically depict socio-economical disadvantage in a way that his predecessors had failed to do. He rapped about female empowerment, about his socio-political views, and in the words of music journalist Chuck Phillips, he helped to elevate rap from a crude street fad into a complex art form. And none of this is surprising really, given Tupac's upbringing and heritage. Born in the East Harlem district of Manhattan and originally named Lausanne Parish Crooks, Tupac was later renamed after Tupac Amaru II, who was executed in Peru in 1781 after his failed revolt against Spanish rule. Explaining her decision to change his name, Tupac's mother later commented, I wanted him to have a name of revolutionary indigenous people in the world. I wanted him to know he was part of a world culture and not just from a neighbourhood. Tupac's mother and father were active members of the Black Panther Party in New York in the 60s and 70s and together they fought to address food injustice and police brutality in African American communities, helping to implement a variety of community and social programmes. As a child, Tupac's creative talents and aspirations were nurtured and encouraged, and for a time he attended the Baltimore School for the Arts, where he studied acting, poetry, jazz and ballet. Tupac was a thoughtful child, known for his sense of humour and love of the arts. He was equally at home writing poetry or rapping in a school competition, and his parents' political beliefs influenced his life and works well into adulthood. It was this influence that set him apart from his peers. His work stood out, it was noticed and it was loved. 
After the success of his first two albums, Tupac released his third album in March 1995, whilst he was serving a prison sentence for first-degree sexual assault, more of which later. Entitled Me Against the World, it was a critical and commercial success, and it's now considered to be his magnum opus. Me Against the World would go on to sell 3 million copies in the US alone, but it would be Tupac's last album with current label Interscope. In 1995, he moved to Death Row Records, a label which will feature heavily in today's episode. But before we go there, let's hear from the first of today's show sponsors. Death Row Records was founded in 1992 by a number of prominent record producers and industry executives. An instant success, the label became a sensation by releasing multi-platinum hip-hop albums by West Coast-based artists such as Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg and of course Tupac. At its height, Death Row Records was making in excess of $100 million a year and it was worth more than half a billion dollars. At the helm was a man called Shug Knight. By the mid-90s, Shug had ousted his co-founders and was the CEO and face of Death Row Records. He was a central figure in gangster rap and the most powerful hip-hop music executive on the West Coast. But he was also a criminal, a violent gangster who believed in his own hype. A man who ran his business with an iron fist, favouring violence and intimidation over diplomacy and negotiation. Shug grew up in Compton, a city situated south of downtown Los Angeles. Although he had a stable upbringing, gang culture was all around him growing up. But Shug's mother and father worked hard to steer him onto a meaningful path. And it worked. He successfully graduated high school in 1983, where he was a football and track star, and he went on to attend El Camino College before transferring to the University of Nevada on a football scholarship. In 1989, while he was still in his early 20s, Shug set up his own music publishing company, successfully procuring the rights to Vanilla Ice's hit song, Ice Ice Baby. But the legacy of a childhood in a city playing host to gang warfare had left its mark on Shug. In shielding their son from gang culture and the trouble that comes with it, Shug's parents had actually ostracised him from his peers and Shug was left with a desperate need to fit in, to belong to something bigger than himself or his family. His newfound success, firstly with his publishing company and then with Death Row Records, allowed him to create his own fiefdom, where he could recreate the childhood that he was denied and achieve a sense of purpose and belonging. He set about recruiting his old school friends, the very individuals his parents had fought so desperately to distance him from. Mostly members of the notorious Bloods gang, Shug paid them up to $1,000 a day to act as his henchmen, his hitmen. Soon, Death Row Records stopped resembling a record company and started to resemble a gang. The offices were showy, stocked full of sex workers, hangers-on, tables overflowing with drugs and weapons. Shug even had a gigantic fish tank installed in his office, brimming with black piranhas. He also had a German shepherd which was trained to kill, and the corridors and offices were full of gang members sitting around, smoking weed on the payroll to do pretty much nothing. Sex parties were commonplace, as were fights, but all the while the label went from strength to strength, 
and Shug's reputation as the doyen of the West Coast hip-hop scene was now firmly cemented. On the other side of the country, in New York, was Shug's arch-nemesis and CEO of East Coast label Bad Boy Entertainment, Sean Puffy Coombs. Sean, known as Puffy since he was a boy for the way in which he would huff and puff when he got angry, was a near-carbon copy of Shug. A few years younger, he too had been a star football player in high school, and he'd also pursued further education, in his case at Howard University, where he studied towards a business major. Puffy later became an intern at Uptown Records, where he was influential in developing the early careers of Jodeci and Mary J. Blige, before going on to set up his own label, the aforementioned Bad Boy Entertainment, in 1993, just a year after Shug had founded Death Row Records. While Death Row Records had the pick of the West Coast talent, Bad Boy Entertainment had the pick of the East Coast talent. The companies, and indeed their CEOs, were so similar, it was a given that there would be intense rivalry between the pair. And this rivalry extended to the label's roster of talent too. In the mid-90s, the biggest rivals were Tupac, signed to Death Row Records, and Big E, signed to Bad Boy Entertainment. Christopher Wallace, a.k.a. the notorious B.I.G., Biggie Smalls, whom I shall be referring to as Big E from here on in, was born and raised in New York the only child of Jamaican immigrant parents. He was nicknamed Big as a child owing to him being overweight. In direct contrast to Tupac, Biggie's upbringing was filled with neglect. His father left the family when he was two years old, and in order to make ends meet, his mother held down two jobs and was often absent from the family home. By 12, Biggie was dealing drugs and regularly skipping school. He began rapping as a teenager, entertaining people on the streets and performing in local groups. But he dropped out of school at the age of 17 and became more involved in crime. In 1989 he was arrested on weapons charges in Brooklyn and sentenced to five years probation. A year later he was arrested for violating his probation and a year after that he served jail time for dealing crack cocaine. Following his release from prison, Biggie made a vow to turn his life around. With a renewed focus on his music, he started to turn his ambitions into a reality, and in 1994, his debut album dropped, reaching number 13 on the Billboard 200 chart. It would go on to shift more than 6 million copies around the world. Biggie had well and truly made it now. While Tupac dominated the West Coast hip-hop scene, Biggie shifted the focus back to East Coast hip-hop. At this time in the early 90s, there wasn't as much rivalry between the East Coast and the West Coast, and actually the two men became firm friends in the early 90s. Indeed, it was Tupac who nurtured Biggie's rise to stardom, encouraging him to open for him at his concerts and influencing his musical direction. In those early days, the two would often travel together, and Biggie also regularly stayed over at Tupac's house. But the friendship didn't last. In November 1994, Tupac was contacted by renowned music manager James Rosemond, who offered him $7,000 to record a verse for his client Little Sean at a recording studio in Times Square in New York. Tupac reluctantly agreed, but when he entered the lobby of the recording studios, he was attacked by three men who robbed and beat him at gunpoint. Tupac was shot in the scuffle and later learnt that Biggie had been in the studio at the time, along with Bad Boy Entertainment CEO Puffy. 
When the pair released a song entitled Who Shot Ya a few months later, although no direct reference was made to Tupac, he did take it as a mockery of his shooting and he thought that the pair could be responsible. In retaliation, Tupac released a song entitled Hit Em Up, in which he boasted of sleeping with Biggie's wife Faith Evans, rapping, and I quote, That's why I fucked your bitch, you fat motherfucker. His words, not mine. So I think it's safe to say that by this point, 1995, with both Tupac and Biggie at the peak of their success, the pair were no longer on friendly terms. And I say that they were both at the peak of their success, which they absolutely were, we must remember that Tupac was in prison at this time. As if this story couldn't get more complicated. In November 1993, Tupac and three other men were charged with sexually assaulting a woman. The woman alleged that after consensual oral sex in his hotel room, she returned a day later but was then raped by Tupac and a number of other men. In December of the following year, just days after Tupac had been shot at the recording studios, he arrived in court in a wheelchair where he was convicted of first-degree sexual abuse. The following February, he was sentenced to 18 months to four and a half years in prison by a judge who denounced his assault as an act of brutal violence against a helpless woman. During his time at the Clinton Correctional Facility in New York, Tupac was said to have become increasingly resentful at his fate. He had a lot of time to think and despite having sold millions of records, he was actually broke. He had been betrayed by his protégé, Big E, and in a similar vein to the ambush at the recording studio, for which he held Big E and Puffy responsible, Tupac believed that he had also been set up for the sexual assault charges by rivals within the industry. And we don't know that for sure. Ultimately, Tupac was convicted of a serious sexual assault, and we do have to accept the court's ruling here, but it is possible that he had been honey-trapped by his victim and set up. He always maintained that was the case. We'll never know exactly what happened, but either way, Tupac felt betrayed and attacked as he whiled away the hours in his tiny, rat-infested cell. At this time, with his mother about to lose her house to the bank and desperate to get out of jail, Tupac reached out to the only man he knew could help, Shug Knight, head of Death Row Records. Tupac knew of Shug's reputation. He knew Shug would protect him and restore his own reputation. Shug agreed to sign Tupac to his label, and Tupac's mother promptly received a visit from his henchman with $15,000 in cash. Her home was saved, and Shug agreed to post a $1.4 million bond in order to secure Tupac's release pending a judicial review. And this is where things get really messy. With Tupac and Biggie now sworn enemies, and Tupac having signed to Death Row Records, he felt invincible. People around him said he underwent a transformation in prison and upon his release, and it does appear that this was the case. Hanging around with Shug and hell-bent on avenging those who incarcerated and humiliated him, Tupac set about brandishing his own form of retribution. But it would end in tragedy. A chain of events had now begun which would ultimately lead to Tupac being gunned down nine months after being released from prison. Six months after this, Biggie would follow suit in eerily similar circumstances. Before we get to the events of September the 7th in 1996, the night in which Tupac was fatally shot as he sat in his car at traffic lights outside the Flamingo Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas, there is a little bit of further context to add. 
We've looked at the rivalries between Tupac and Big E, the most successful rappers in the world in the mid-90s, at first firm friends, then later sworn enemies, but there is another rivalry we must explore further before we get to the main event. The rivalry between Suge Knight and Puff Daddy. As I said earlier, the two men were similar, both super successful CEOs of super successful record labels, one on the East Coast, the other on the West Coast. It was a given that they would be rivals, competing for talent and profile. But their rivalry didn't just extend to business. There was a deeply personal conflict too. In 1995, at a party for producer Jermaine Dupree in Atlanta, a close friend of Shug's, Jake Robles, was shot dead. Shug accused Puffy, who was also in attendance, of having something to do with the shooting and he actually went as far to claim that Puffy had orchestrated the hit as a way of getting at him. Shug had no proof but he was convinced of Puffy's involvement and this incident only intensified his hatred of Puffy. So I know that's a lot of background, hopefully you're managing to keep up. So far I've introduced you to the four main players. We have rival record label bosses Shug and Puffy and their star signings Tupac and Biggie. It was inevitable that things would eventually come to a head and that's exactly what happened in September 1996. So before we head there to Las Vegas in real time I want to talk to you about Best Fiends, our second sponsor. So let's head to Las Vegas now. It's the 7th of September 1996. It's a balmy summer's evening and as the sun begins to set behind the MGM Grand on Las Vegas' infamous strip, Tupac Shakur is inside with his entourage of hangers-on and bodyguards. Also in attendance tonight is Tupac's boss and mentor, Death Row Records CEO Suge Knight. An air of anticipation descends over the hotel, a kind of quiet excitement. Tonight is fight night. In just a few hours' time, Mike Tyson, who has only recently been released from prison for rape, will fight Bruce Seldon for the WBA heavyweight championship title in what has been described as the fight of the decade. Tupac and Shug are in town to celebrate the birthday of Tupac's business partner, Tracy Robinson. It's been a busy few months for Tupac. Since his release from prison nine months previously, he's been hard at work recording and releasing his fourth studio album, All Eyes On Me. An instant hit, selling 566,000 copies in its first week, the record has been hailed a monumental epic by critics. Tupac is riding high once again, dominating the charts and indulging in all of the trappings that come with success and fame. After a few drinks in the hotel bar, Tupac, Shug and their entourage head to the MGM Grand Garden Arena to watch the big fight. Tupac is there in support of his friend Mike Tyson. The two have become close in recent months, both having risen from the flames of incarceration. They have a lot in common. 17,000 people pack into the arena and Tupac, Shug and their entourage are all sat up front in spitting distance of the ring. The opening bell sounds and Tyson storms at Selden, raining down blow after blow. Selden briefly regains his composure and attempts to connect his powerful left jab, but Tyson skillfully dodges his attempts. 72 seconds in and Tyson knocks Selden to the ground with a left hook. Selden answers the referee's counter eight and gets up. 
Tyson immediately rains down another left hook, and once again he knocks Selden to the ground. As he gets up to face Tyson once again, he loses his balance and the referee storms into the ring to stop the fight at 109 seconds. Tyson is awarded the victory by technical knockout to resounding applause. Tupac jumps to his feet and his eyes briefly lock with Tyson's, the two friends sharing in this moment of victory. Tyson is ushered away and Tupac and his crew head out to the lobby. It's crowded and adrenaline permeates the air. A member of Tupac's entourage spots a rival gang member, a notorious Southside Compton Crip called Orlando Baby Lane Anderson. Some months prior, Baby Lane had attempted to snatch the neck chain of one of Tupac's entourage, a Death Row Records gold medallion. Rumour has it that Puffy, CEO of rival label Bad Boy Entertainment, has offered up a $10,000 bounty for each Death Row Records medallion that's presented to him. A fight breaks out between Tupac's crew and Baby Lane's crew. Punches are thrown and Baby Lane is injured badly. The brawl ends as quickly as it erupted, a mass version of the earlier Tyson fight they had all witnessed, over in a similar record time. Tupac makes for his hotel room to get changed, before heading out with Suge and the rest of his entourage. A convoy of cars make their way down Las Vegas Boulevard towards Suge's nightclub, Club 662. Sat in the front passenger seat of Shug's black BMW is Tupac. Shug is driving. It's late now, but Vegas is heaving. As Shug stops at a red light, a crowd of girls recognise Tupac and descend on the car, screaming his name. The lights change and Shug speeds off. The two men don't speak. Loud music blares as they replay the events of the earlier brawl in their minds. As Shug pulls up at another red light, a white Cadillac sedan pulls up at the passenger side. Tupac looks across at the car and recoils in horror when he sees a gun pointed directly at him. The sound of gunfire fills the air and Tupac slumps back in his seat. Shug is cowering in the footwell. The Cadillac sedan races off into the distance and Shug leaps out of the car and drags Tupac from his seat and lays him on the roadside. Tupac's blood is smeared all over the cream leather interior. He's been shot four times and is bleeding profusely. But he's alive. A bullet has grazed Shug's head. He's bleeding, but he's okay. He sees an ambulance in the distance racing towards the scene. Tupac is drifting in and out of consciousness now, and he hoarsely whispers to Shug that he cannot breathe. Blood sprays from his mouth as he attempts to talk some more, but he can't make a sound now. He has been shot once in the arm, once in the thigh and twice in the chest, with one bullet slicing through his left lung. The paramedics arrive and attempt CPR before placing Tupac into the ambulance. He is taken to the University Medical Centre of Southern Nevada, where he is placed on life support. But it's no good. Six days later, the decision is made to take Tupac off life support and he dies surrounded by family on the 13th of September in 1996, at the age of 25. The official causes of death are respiratory failure and cardiac arrest associated with multiple gunshot wounds. Tupac is cremated the next day and his legacy is born. In the days following the shooting, the Las Vegas police failed to properly preserve the crime scene and what followed can only be described as an inadequate investigation. 
In fairness to them, they were initially dealing with a shooting rather than a murder. It only became the latter when Tupac's life support machine was switched off six days after the shooting. Nevertheless, vital evidence was contaminated, and although the police arrested Orlando Babyface Anderson, the rival gang member whom Tupac and his entourage had beaten up in the hotel lobby on the night of his shooting, he was ultimately released without charge. We will explore his role in all of this in more detail later on, but first let's fast forward a little. The year is 1997 and Big E, Tupac's arch nemesis, is riding high in the wake of Tupac's murder. Suge Knight, head of Tupac's label, Death Row Records, is in prison for his role in the assault on Orlando Babyface Anderson. Death Row is now all but over and its roster of talent is rapidly deserting the label. With Shug locked up, his stronghold over the West Coast hip-hop scene is all but over, and Puffy, head of rival label Bad Boy Entertainment, and his star signing Biggie, feel invincible. It's February 97, and the pair head out to LA on a month-long promotional tour. Whilst in the city, Biggie is to shoot a music video and complete a round of radio and TV interviews to promote his upcoming album, Life After Death. Previous trips to the West Coast have been fraught with anxiety for the pair. LA was Shug's territory, and he didn't take kindly to Puffy and his label talent stalking his turf. This was evident in December 1995, just months before Tupac's murder, when Puffy was living in Los Angeles for a brief period of time. Hearing word that Puffy was in town, Shug set about hunting him down. At a Death Row Records party hosted by Shug high up in the Hollywood Hills, an associate of Puffy's was tortured for information pertaining to Puffy's whereabouts. Puffy managed to leave town in the nick of time, but this incident proved he was right to be fearful of conducting business in person in LA. So fearful, in fact, that he was said to recruit members of the notorious LA gang The Crips in order to protect him on any visits to the city. The Crips' rivals, the Bloods, were affiliated with Shug and all at Death Row Records, so Puffy's alliance with the Crips, their rivals, only served to increase tensions between Shug and Puffy. But this trip's different. Death Row Records is finished, Shug is inside, and his henchmen have all but disappeared, back to their former lives. Biggie acts like the king of LA during his trip to the city. There is a buzz surrounding his presence and after a month of promotion and with just two weeks to go before his album drops, Biggie is looking forward to some much needed R&R before he returns to his family on the East Coast. It's the 8th of March. In 24 hours time, Biggie will be dead, gunned down in a blaze of bullets just like Tupac was six months earlier. Biggie is due to attend a party being hosted by Vibe and Quest Records at the Peterson Automotive Museum later that night. But first, he must attend the 11th annual Soul Train Music Awards, where he is to present an award to R&B superstar Tony Braxton. The ceremony, being held at the Shrine Auditorium, doesn't quite go without a hitch. As Biggie heads to the stage to present a gleeful Tony Braxton with her award, the crowd boo. Death Row Records and Shug Knight still clearly have some support in the city they once ruled with an iron fist. Biggie brushes it off. The publicity will be good for sales of his upcoming album and besides, he has a party to go to where he is guaranteed to receive a warmer reception. He's to be guest of honour. 
At the party, Biggie mingles with guests, including the late singer Aaliyah, but just as the party is getting started at around 12.30am, the fire department close it down for overcrowding. Biggie leaves with his entourage in two GMC Suburbans to go back to his hotel. He travels in the front passenger seat alongside associates Damien D. Rock Butler, Lil Cease and driver Gregory G. Money Young. I'm definitely, definitely too old to be saying these names seriously. Puffy travels in the other vehicle with three bodyguards. Completing the cavalcade is a Chevrolet Blazer carrying Bad Boy Entertainment's Director of Security, Paul Offord. Biggie's truck stops at a red light just 50 yards from the Peterson Automotive Museum. A black Chevy Impaler pulls up alongside it. The Impaler's driver, an unidentified African-American man, dressed in a blue suit and bow tie, rolls down his window, draws a 9mm blue steel pistol and fires at Biggie's car. Four bullets hit Biggie and his entourage rush him to Cedars-Sinai Medical Centre, where doctors perform an emergency tracheotomy. But it's no use. Within minutes of arriving at hospital, Biggie is pronounced dead. He was just 24 years old. Biggie's funeral was held nine days later, where his distraught wife, Faith Evans, was comforted by Puffy. The two would go on to release a single in Biggie's memory, the 1997 song, I'll Be Missing You. So, where are we? In the space of six months, two of the world's biggest hip-hop stars have been shot dead in eerily similar circumstances. Just who is responsible, and what's the motive? Let's start with Tupac. As I mentioned earlier, Orlando Babyface Anderson, the Crip Gang member whom Tupac and his crew had ambushed in the lobby of the MGM Grand on the night of Tupac's murder, was questioned by police in the wake of Tupac's murder, but no charges were ever brought. It would make sense for him to have assassinated Tupac in revenge for his earlier beating. Tupac was affiliated with Babyface's rival gang, the Bloods. Surely Babyface couldn't let such a beating go unchecked? Was he compelled to seek revenge that night in order to save face amongst his fellow gang members? I think that's likely, but there is an interesting theory that runs alongside this narrative. A theory posed by former LAPD detective Greg Kading, a former investigator in the murder of Big E. In his book, Murder Rap, he claims that in the weeks before Tupac's murder, Puffy had become increasingly fearful for his safety and was said to be desperate to protect himself against Tupac and Suge Knight at any cost. Kading claimed rumours proliferated of a bounty placed on Suge and Tupac's heads at the behest of Puffy. A bounty of a million dollars to take them out. He said Puffy was fed up with having to constantly look over his shoulder and he wanted Shug's and Tupac's heads on a plate. Caden claimed Babyface's uncle, Dwayne Keith Keefy D. Davis, a well-known drug dealer and member of the Crips, had been approached directly by Puffy to carry out the hit. Of course, Puffy has denied this through his lawyers and no charges have ever been brought against him, but it's an interesting theory. A theory in which Keefy D himself goes on to claim that his nephew, Babyface, was the one who actually pulled the trigger that night. We'll never know for sure, and even if Babyface was Tupac's killer, one, he didn't really do a very good job because he failed to take out Shug as well, but two, he died 18 months after Tupac's murder anyway, being gunned down himself. 
Whatever the case, it's highly likely that Shirk had Big E killed as revenge for Tupac's murder, a murder he lay firmly at the door of Puffy. There are a couple of wilder theories out there, however. Russell Paul, a former LAPD detective who was initially assigned to Biggie's murder case, publicly theorised that Suge was behind Tupac's murder. And surely this can't be true. Would Suge really have had his protégé killed, his cash cow? Paul claims Tupac threatened to leave Suge's label, Death Row Records, in a dispute over money. Don't forget, when Tupac was in prison in 1995, having sold millions of records, he hadn't seen a penny of that. Rumours were allegedly flying around that Tupac was considering suing Death Row over the rights to his music, which he was then intending to release on a different label. The former detective Paul claimed Suge owed Tupac millions of dollars and that Tupac was after his money. He said Tupac didn't want to go to Vegas, but Suge had persuaded him, saying he would finally pay him the money that he was owed. That is the only reason, Paul alleges, that Tupac went to Vegas. Paul goes on to claim that Tupac did not have adequate security on the night that he was shot. Did Suge really orchestrate this hit as a way of stopping Tupac from leaving his label? And if so, why was Biggie killed six months later? Paul claimed Suge had Biggie murdered in order to cover his tracks, to galvanise the East Coast-West Coast feud to throw investigators off track. It's possible. There is one glaring hole in this theory though. Why would Suge sit next to Tupac in the car that night, knowing that bullets were about to start flying at Tupac, who was sitting just inches from him? For me, I don't think Suge had Tupac killed, and neither does Greg Cading, the former LAPD detective who took over the investigation from Paul. It's highly likely that Greg Cading is right in his assertion that Babyface, the man whom Tupac and his crew beat up in the lobby of the MGM Grand on the night of his shooting, was responsible for killing Tupac. Whether Puffy had offered a bounty is anyone's guess, that's probably just speculation. But I think yes, Babyface did take out Tupac as revenge for beating him up earlier that night. What we can be certain of though is Suge's part in Biggie's murder. Although behind bars at the time, he is said to have orchestrated the hit with the help of corrupt police officers who were working as security for the Bloods. In the acclaimed film Last Man Standing, Shug Knight and the murders of Biggie and Tupac, director Nick Broomfield explores the role of the police in both Tupac's and Biggie's murders. The film comes up with new evidence supporting the theory that LAPD detectives were complicit and that they attempted to conceal evidence. It takes a real deep dive into the life and crimes of Shug Knight, his rise and dramatic fall. He is currently serving a 28-year sentence for an unrelated manslaughter charge. He's never faced charges over Biggie's murder. For those interested in finding out more, tickets are on sale for the preview event of Last Man Standing right now. Head to lastmanstanding.film to find your local cinema. The event is on the 30th of June in over 130 cinemas nationwide and it will be followed by a Q&A with director Nick Broomfield and film collaborator Pam Brooks who is an absolute legend in this film. She's an amazing character. Um, so last man standing haven't paid us to do this episode uh it's not we're not affiliated in any way but they got in touch and said 
that they were going to be releasing this film very soon and um it inspired me really to uh to do an episode on on the unsolved still unsolved murders of Tupac and Big E um and yeah if you want to know more about that and um about Suge Knight's responsibilities in all of that then yeah do check out lastmanstanding.film and um the the film is being shown on the 30th of June in cinemas all over the place so yeah it'd be really interesting to uh, to book tickets and get out the house and uh, and to watch it if you're if you're living in in the UK so thank you for listening please do get in touch with us in all of the usual ways you can find us on facebook instagram twitter and youtube Uh, if you're finding the weekly episodes just aren't enough for you then you can head over to patreon and find a shitload more content at patreon.com slash seeing red podcast go on fill your boots and don't forget to check out today's show sponsors the mobile puzzle game everyone is talking about right now best fiends and trip the home of delicious cbd infused drinks and cbd oils just head to drinktrip.com and use code red for 15 percent off and free shipping i'll be back next week for a case that takes us to merseyside as we cover the murder of 11 year old reese jones until then see you next week <laughs>